can you hear me? Hello? Are we, are we here together now? Let me know in the comments. So I'm late. Somebody said I'm late. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you very much for joining. Happy Monday. It's Monday, y'all. It's Monday. It's not Friday. It's Monday. Best day of the week. Just kidding. Friday, August 19th, 11 a.m. Central. Thank you so much for joining us today. We had a very exciting week and we have an awesome panel to discuss all the great things that have been happening in the Tesla, Elon, tech, future, who knows what else world. Come on in. Here are our guests. We have Hans. We have Rodman. And a new addition. A new addition to the community forum. Ooh. Never before seen before. Before. Jared, thank you so much for joining us today, Jared. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, man. Um, for those that are not familiar with the format of this, let me turn off the music. Uh, we, this is our community forum. We do these every week where uh, members of the of, of my community that have signed up to Patreon or YouTube, we come on together and we discuss the topics that the community wants to talk about. But if you're in the comments section and you're watching this, throw out your comments, throw out your questions, throw out your topics. This is basically fair game. We don't really have an agenda. We might have one or two things we want to touch on, but then we allow the conversation to flow um, as we get into different topics. And uh, today we'll actually have Rodman kick off the discussion. We we were having a, he brought up some very, very interesting points in our Discord channel, which uh, you become a part of if you do join the, the channel through Patreon or YouTube. Uh, in that private Discord, Rodman was bringing up some very interesting things uh, about the topic we'll kick off with. So Rodman, I'll give you the mic and then we'll take it from there. Before we do that, uh, Jared, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh yeah, I'm so, <laughs> look, I'm such a terrible host, bro. Go ahead. What are I'm doing? trying to take over your job, so. No, yeah. that's good. It's yours. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm Jared. I live in Ohio, um, and I worked at Tesla for a brief stint. Um, probably, so I brought a prop. You can see the Tesla Roadster behind me. Um, in about seventh grade, I bought that poster. So I've been following Tesla for quite some time. Wow. Uh, worked at Tesla for about eighteen months in sales in Ohio, um, and then yeah, probably the first thing that got me big into Tesla was in like 2014, 15. A family friend bought a Model S and then realizing like, wow, this is so much better than every other car there is out there. And I just became a fanboy from then. Awesome. What years were you there? Uh, 16 and 17. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. So like right before the, right at the early stages of Model 3 ramp basically is when yeah. you were at the company. Yeah. Okay. And the I actually early have stages a lot of, of questions. Major fun war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What, uh, what made you, um, what made you move on? What, what, what was the decision to move on? Yeah. So I was working part-time in college was the main thing. Um, and then mm -hmm. getting my degree in finance, obviously working sales doesn't necessarily align with a career in finance. Um, uh, but it was a great part-time gig, obviously compared to anything else you would do in college. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. That's badass. Cool. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for introducing yourself. Thank you, Rodman for doing a better job than I am. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no way. Um, so, so what I've been thinking about a lot was um, sort of this idea that uh, analysts will never analyze the companies the way we analyze it. So we're taking into account for like, like what the potential for RoboTaxi and FSD and like um, an Optimus. And the, the way I kind of thought about it was sort of from like a physics idea is that you have like potential energy, which is all these ideas like RoboTaxi, uh, Optimus, things that aren't really worn out in financials right now, but they're potential things. And eventually they get turned into kinetic energy or real financials. Like once 
you've actually started delivering the Cybertruck, you can actually start to model that or put it into your to your estimates. But until then, it's still sort of an anomalous thing that that is more like a pretend idea, more of a potential than a than a real actual physical thing that can measure. So I was starting to think about more like what are the other differences? I mean, and another way to think about it is it's it's sort of like if you were an owner of Apple in 2000 and you were seeing these iPads, iPods, and then you saw on the on the horizon, here comes they're going to make a phone, right? And you could tell that to analysts if you knew, but they probably still would not pay attention to you because it doesn't exist, right? So, um in the same way, Tesla is sort of owning Tesla right now. For me, seems like it's owning Apple before the smartphone, because you know we still have we just have these cars. No one's thinking about these bigger things. It's like owning Amazon before they had AWS. Um, so I was trying to push this thought more, like what other differences are there? And um, the other thing that really came to my mind was this idea that Elon shared these these technologies, these things that he's thinking about that are years out with the public instead of keeping them to himself. So as Apple really was like kind of quiet with the iPhone, right? Or Amazon was very quiet about AWS. They didn't want to release these things before people, I mean, before they were ready so that people couldn't steal their ideas and run with it. So why is it that Elon's willing to do that? And well, we can start taking it from there. Yeah, that's that was the one thing that <clears throat> when you said that the Elon shares the long term vision with everybody of the company, whereas every other company is super close to their vest because they're afraid competition is going to come in or steal the ideas or they don't. I don't know. It's a certain playbook that companies have is proof of how confident Tesla is and Elon is in their ability to be better than everyone else. Like, oh, I yeah. think I think it starts from there, right? So once he feels, because otherwise, otherwise, why would you say those things, I guess, is what I'm trying to think through. So that's the biggest thing that stands out to me. But then we benefit from that as an investing community, that they're so confident in their ability to execute that we get to know what they're doing alongside they, what they think, what they want to be doing in the future. But then the traditional analysts or whoever else are following the company, they're not giving Tesla that that benefit. They're essentially treating them as anybody else, as like an Apple or of a, of a, well, let's wait and see how they do it. Whereas we do get insight into that company and their track record of execution, I think is what creates that gigantic gap between investor and Wall Street, uh, retail investor in Wall Street. So that's kind of like the thoughts that go through my mind, but I'm curious to hear <laughs> y'all's as well. So one of the reasons I think Tesla does so much of this like public display of future products, I think goes back to actually the early days of funding. So in like 2006, 2007, they did a lot of marketing and like roadshows and stuff like that for the Roadster. So they needed to raise the funding and deposits to actually create the product. And then from there, obviously, they had to fund and stuff for the Model 3 and do like the ramp scale there. So I wonder if it's just a continuation of those days and the product cycles and stuff like that from then too. Mm. Yeah, one of the questions that kind of I have is that pressure that 
not wanting to share with people, does that come from an internal thing inside the companies or is it almost an environmental factor that, you know, people in the public investing community, all your fund managers, you know, kind of basing this off of Gary on Twitter, um, you know, they, they don't want to see like, so essentially what we're talking about is Elon is opening up about all of the startup ideas that Tesla has. And it's basically like we as retail investors don't typically get to invest in startups. We're just not allowed to, um, unless you're a very high end retail investor and the public market is not the startup investing market fund managers who are investing in the public markets and control, you know, 80% or whatever of the money that is in the public markets, they're not interested in investing in startups. If they were, you know, that would be a siloed thing that they did in a separate vehicle for separate reasons. And so they don't want to hear, you know, what are all the crazy ideas that you and your harebrained engineeringness have like planned out in the future they want to know how can you be razor focused at doing this one thing that makes you a ton of money right now. And we want to model what that looks like from now until 2035 or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it could just be that for people who are not like Elon and just straight up don't care what institutional money wants or thinks that they have to play the game of, well, we're going to hold all these cards close to our best. Like, you know, Google does a lot of these types of moonshots, but you don't hear them talking about them. Like, mm. <clears throat> and, and I think that's also a, a good case in point that, you know, public market investors have watched Google try all these moonshot ideas and how many of those have added anything significant to Google's bottom line. Not much. Like everyone still models Google just based on search and ads. Like that is the bread and butter of the business. And so there's, you know, an amount of skepticism that investors have about these startup type ideas being able to be meaningful to the company. That's justified. That's interesting. So it's almost like, it's almost like in the case of Tesla, they, they are working on moonshot ideas, but they're actually going to add quite a bit of profit in the bottom, to the bottom line if they're able to execute against them versus the, the example that gets drawn usually is, well, Google's working on Google Glass and it ain't gonna do shit, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, Amazon is working on Amazon phone and this thing is a total disaster, right? Whereas Tesla's like, we're gonna come up with a robot that replaces all labor and <laughs> What's the valuation? <laughs> you know, it's so that's very interesting too. So it's a, it's a combination of moonshot and uh, value to the general public, which then um, sort of points towards the company being able to become extremely profitable for that because the public is actually utilizing that technology. Yeah, interesting. I I, I kind of wonder if like like if you just thought about like back in the two thousand six before like when like the iPhone was sort of like an inkling on people's radars, like people were just as greedy back then to like, oh, Apple's working on its next big thing, right? And like, there were like little inklings of like that that they were making a phone. And it's kind of like today, like, oh, Apple's working on a car and like, it's a secret, right? And that kind of 
like I feel like maybe there was more excitement and more drive. It's like, oh, I'm willing to put my money on that because like it's like my chance. Like if I'm a like it, if I knew that, then like maybe more people are willing to put their their money on it because it's like a chance. It's like a gamble. Whereas with these things, it's like maybe it's already been partly priced in, they believe, or um, I mean, I think some of it has to feel like if, if I'm an outsider to Tesla, that like part of the price that and how it's not justified in their minds, a lot of it maybe comes from, oh, like these people are already trying to price this stuff in there. And then mm. that's why the price is so crazy. So, but I mean, so you're yeah, saying more like an intuitive sense that people are like, well, the reason why it's 900 bucks to share in a trillion market cap is because people think that people are already pricing this stuff and without actually sitting down and doing the math and figuring out that this is a quite a bit more incremental than what's already priced in. Is that what you're like? The intuitive sense yeah. is that it's already in the stock. Okay. Right. But I mean, if you actually look at it, it's clearly, mm -hmm. it's clearly not. I mean, yeah, like it would just be so much more insane. Than well, and you can like it's understandable to get that sense if you're not doing a deep dive when you just look at the market caps of all the other auto companies you're like okay this is what auto companies should be worth now we're not actually going to dig into the fundamentals of cash flow and the fact that all these companies have so much massive debt and like their potential to return capital to investors over the next 10 years is basically zero and that's why their market cap is not very good but like if you don't get to that detail and look at the fact that tesla's going to be a cash flow machine then you don't understand that that's why there's such a difference in market cap between toyota and tesla and so then yeah you just come to the conclusion oh well the simple explanation is that there's a bunch of crazy elon musk fanboys out there who think that he's gonna make this like agi tesla bot that's gonna replace the world's labor and that obviously those people are crazy so yeah they should listen to gary black and look at his analysis like that. That's yes. what comes to mind immediately is like, OK, look at what Gary's doing. Like Gary's, uh, by the way, for those that don't know, he was on my uh, thing yesterday with Alexandra. We were actually bought him a new mic. Kathy K donated one hundred dollars on the stream <laughs> specifically amazing. for a new microphone. And we literally shipped him one to his office this morning and he's going to get it on Monday. Yeah. We got nice. him a blue Yeti. So um, he needs to be heard a lot more, man. Like he really does. It was such a fascinating um, sort of peephole into how traditional analysts and uh, finance and all these different, the people with all the money, how they view these things. And, and, and the fact that he was able to so methodically, and in my opinion, very conservatively, like super conserva conservatively come up with a valuation model that is almost twice the price today to me tells me that most analysts are don't know what the fuck they're doing. Like, what are you doing? How, how can you have a price target that's 700 or 600 or even current price when, when somebody that's coming through and doing this very methodical approach is coming up with a $600 price target. And so where my brain goes is like, okay, 80, 20, again, 80, 80% 80 of financial analysts are not going to be very good at their jobs or, or they're not giving enough uh, time to the story to fully understand it. And maybe that's what it is more than anything is that they have so many other things they're looking at 
that they can't actually sit down and fully understand this single story, which is arguably six or seven companies in one. And maybe that's why. Maybe it's not getting enough attention. So, um, but yeah, that's that, the way Gary Black approaches that valuation speaks directly to what you're saying, which is the the company already one could argue more than deserves a higher stock price than they have today on the existing business. Forget FSD, forget bot, forget everything else. Mm-hmm. It's sixteen hundred dollars with a, a very predictable. Uh, target in the next four to five years and they don't got to do nothing with full self-driving or the bot or anything else like that but you do have to give them execution like you have to bake in the fact that they're going to continue to execute at least at a level that's close to what they have been executing on that's the one kind of caveat so 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 you just have to keep doing what they're doing though right sorry jared yeah yeah so i wonder too you know we if, if there's any like recency bias baked into any of this too, because if you think of any new financial analyst over these past five years, the big conversation has been around the bot, Cybertruck, Roadster, and all these things that have been promised within these past five years and haven't been executed on. Obviously, FSD has made leaps and bounds. Obviously, production of SX3 and Y has come leaps and bounds. But in terms of innovation to market, there hasn't been as much in these past five years where Tesla's stock price has gone on a run-up the popularity of eyes on it has gone up significantly. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the re- obvious reasons for that are they're so focused on ramping three and why, but I mean, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, there, there probably could be some confusion on that. It's mm-hmm. like we, we've, we've, there definitely is confusion on that because you read in the media that the cyber truck has been delayed and delayed. And mm-hmm. the clear reason is, they're focusing their money where it counts right now. Like you could split your effort between adding a new vehicle, but if you can't even satisfy the current demand for your vehicle, it just, it's ridiculous to like throw on a new product line that adds more overhead and you can't deliver on both of those. Right. So, I mean, the the media story is one thing. The reality is a different thing. And Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're just never going to, I, I yeah, mean, I guess what I understand yeah. that the reason why it's been delayed is because of the exact opposite of the narrative. You know, people keep talking about, oh, there's going to be a demand right. cliff. Oh, there's going to be a demand cliff. Oh, there's going to be a demand cliff. And even Tesla believed there was going to be more of a demand cliff than there actually was when rubber met the road. That, hey, we literally cannot produce even close to the amount of Model Ys that there is demand in the market for. And so we thought we were going to like make these model Ys and then we were going to need a cyber truck in order to continue to grow the number of cars that we were delivering because we weren't going to be able to sell that many cars if we didn't add another form factor into the market. And they're like, no, wait a second. Like we literally can't sell enough like we can't make enough model threes and model Ys to meet current existing demand. And we're just going to have to like focus head down on that for several extra years beyond what we thought we were going to have to. And then once we finally do that, like, okay, now we've got enough battery supply to where, and we're selling two or three times as many model threes and Ys that we thought we were going to sell. Now we can hit the cyber truck. And that's like the mechanics of what have actually happened, but people just don't understand that that's what, is going on. I think there's an interesting thing with demand that I haven't seen talked about too much. And it's with regards to like Tesla's brand and everything like that. 
And I almost don't expect there to be any demand cliff, almost like the iPhone. You just, the iPhone has been the popular phone to get for a decade now, a decade plus. Tesla is the cool car to get. You ask any of your nieces, nephews, kids, anyone of like any younger age, any like 25 and younger, what car they want. Do they want a BMW, Mercedes, Tesla? Everybody's going to pick Tesla. Um, so like there's just so much there that's untapped mm-hmm. to in recognizing the future demand. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. Like even my children who are nine and five, their friends, when we drive places, they're like, I want to drive in the Tesla and instead of their own parents' cars when we carpool mm-hmm. and stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, and it's, it's not like these kids are not car. driving in nice cars either. Like, you know, they can be yeah. in a Lexus BMW, Lexus, yeah, a, like, yeah, Audi Q7. <laughs> <laughs> You know. Shoot at Porsche Panamera, and they're like, "Hey, I want to go in the Tesla." Yeah, yeah. It's it's still to this day. Like I was, I always find it so fascinating when, like, even when when I was speaking with Gary yesterday. You know, one of the things that 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 was brought up was was you know competition down the road, competition down the road. Like, there's going to be all mm-hmm. these other companies that are coming up. Like, I, I still to this day, and if we're talking specifically about cars, um, I don't think. And I'm not saying Gary specifically, but I'm still curious, like uh, how many folks actually grasp the concept of uh, there being no competition within EVs? There's competition against gas cars for the foreseeable future when you have a 1.4 billion unit fleet of gas cars, you know, like the the way I view it is that the so say <clears throat> I think the peak Peak auto in globally was what ninety million units a year or something like that. Uh, Ninety five million units a, uh, a year. Like I don't see there being a a, a cap to that um, market until the entire fleet is at least halfway done being converted. So like the way I think about it is we could have a two hundred million or a three hundred million uh, unit per year unit. Uh, new cars being sold until that full thing gets turned over. And until that happens, we're 20, 30 years into the future, you know? So, so what are they going to be competing against? They're not going to be competing against each other. They're going to be, or they're not going to be competing against other EVs. They're going to compete against the cars that exist right now that are gas cars. And I'm just, I still think to this day that concept's not being grasped. We're putting some artificial limit to how many cars can be sold each year. And then you not even including the fact that you're going to have a lot of first and second world countries that are going to be transitioning into the first world, or they're going to have infrastructures that are going to be able to um, house a lot more vehicles per capita than they are today and then you also have the variable of you know uh, uh four to um 18 year olds or 17 year olds like jared said that are finding these new evs to be super super fascinating they're going to start coming into uh, the market as new buyers and that's going to spare a gigantic amount of demand then you talk about the self-driving technology mm-hmm. and how that's going i mean it's there's a lot and again this is like this is future it's hard I understand why it's hard for some to conceptualize this and put it into the financial model, but not including it, I think is not is not the right approach either, because I think there's substantial evidence that shows that this is the likely scenario. So we should somehow factor this in, but I get it if we don't, you know, I get it if we don't, yes. but I do, you know? Yeah. How about this? I want to, I just want to kind of blow your mind. Uh, do you remember the- Wula No, please don't, picture? please don't. Okay. <laughs> Remember the picture he sent of, um, I'm going to post it in the chat here, uh, okay. if it's going to paste, but it's the, 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 put it on the private fleet. chat. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's not posting. 
Sorry, it's. I think YouTube like just hates uh, links. So this is the picture of the port in Shanghai where there's ten thousand. This is the one I was trying to count, where it's like ten thousand, um, like, like model uh, Teslas, right? It's like thousands and thousands of Teslas, or maybe this is the wrong one actually. Um, but when you see that picture and you think that's ten thousand Teslas, like just all lined up in a giant like like grids. That's like one-sixth of the number of cars that are being sold in the California every quarter. Like it's like 60, 70 grand, 60, 70,000 cars every quarter, right? Yeah. And it's crazy. Like, like you see 10,000 cars and like that number boggles your mind. But then like six times that is the number of cars being sold in California every quarter. I think that's the number. Mm-hmm. I could be, I could be mm-hmm. completely wrong. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean that like that's going to happen everywhere eventually, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because it's happening here, and I feel like California has been very ahead of the curve, and it. But like, I see the same patterns like starting to form out in like other places, and we're not even close to saturation here. Not even close. I've noticed like, that. <clears throat> I can tell you around these parts in Austin, we are seeing so many more Teslas driving around right now. It's kind of yeah. mind boggling. I don't know if you're seeing yeah. that Hans or Jared, where you guys are from, but man. Definitely it's more, but it's not like here. when, yeah, when I go into the city, like if I hop over to Dallas, it's way more than it is here. Yeah, it's absurd. So, everywhere. I mean, sorry, God, Robin. No, no, no. I mean, because I know where you guys have been at and like, it's been, it like every year, every quarter, it gets crazier and crazier because you're like, <clears throat> it used to be like, okay, I would see one a day. Like I would go on a drive and I would see another one and I'd be like, oh yeah, another Tesla. And then like, you would start to see them more. And now like, I, I, I swear they're more common than like Honda Civics. Like it's yeah. crazy. Like I'll like to get my specific car, like combination and like, and pull up, next to someone who has the exact same car combination. I have a, I have a red model Y with white interior and it's like, it's pretty rare. And like, I've been like in a place where like there was three of us with the same configuration. Like, it was just like, it's just like, it's so rare that like you see one, another one, but like now it's becoming so common. Like that's how many cars there are. It's, and I think, like when I, when I still look around, you know, we're still like one in 10, 12 cars. I mean, even though they're that common, but I, I, I see this trend. It's going to happen everywhere. And it's like you said with the iPhone, uh, Jared, it's like, whereas like the iPhone was once like, like the people in the know had it, like eventually it became like everyone had to have that or the Samsung version of that, right? You know what's something I'm, I've started to notice that you bring that up as a, as a as a thing. Do you guys remember? So like the iPhone time. Do you remember when um, iPhone first came out? It was either around that time or right after that. There was always a set of quote unquote competitors that would come out with a with a product that the iPhone was going to be. So for example, iPhone. I think it was went from iPhone to the iPhone. Uh, GS or the 3GS? 3G, 3GS. Yeah. The 3G, that's right. So it went from iPhone to iPhone 3G. But before the iPhone 3G came out, there were all these 
competitors that were coming out with products that that the iPhone 3G was going to have, like 3G and I don't know, better camera, better screen. But it was always a significantly uh, more subpar experience than the iPhone. It didn't have as big of a screen. It, the screen was dog shit compared to the iPhone. Super slow, cr- really bad battery life, terrible app ecosystem, right? But they were still saying like, look at what we have. We have a 3G phone that's cooler than, than what the iPhone, iPhone is. iPhone killer. <laughs> and then the iPhone comes out to 3GS or the 3G and it's, orders of magnitudes better than whatever else uh, the product was going to show. I'm starting to see this now with with electric vehicles, whereas before, before it was just Tesla and nobody, right? Now it's Tesla and then a competitor comes out before the vehicle segment or the thing that Tesla is gonna come out with, like the Bolt, for example, the new Bolt from GM. It's, uh, I think it's under $25,000 with the EV tax credit. Very affordable, cheap car. But what's the likelihood that the affordable Tesla is going to be orders of magnitude better than the Bolt? You have uh, the bot from Xiaomi, whatever the, the name of that company is. Look at our humanoid bot. It can give you a flower, okay? What is that going to look in respect to the bot? F-150 Lightning in, in these pickup trucks. I'm not saying it's a bad product. Yep. The Rivian, it's in before the Tesla product comes out, but then when Cybertruck comes out, what is that gonna look like? I'm I'm starting to see a, a lot of similarities between those two mm-hmm. sort of product segments coming through. And if we use history as an indicator, uh, once that new product comes out, then from the company that's leading, it, it, it's likely that that, I'm not saying gonna say it's likely, but it's just, I'm just, it's fascinating to watch if it's going to play out the mm-hmm. same, because if it does, then why wouldn't we use uh, the Apple versus everybody else analogy and product segments to try to model out what Tesla's going to do? Even if it's a phone versus a car, it's still the same consumer. The consumer is gonna behave very similarly. It's just a different type of product, right? So I think yeah. there's a stark difference in these iPhone examples to Teslas and cars. So mm-hmm. about like, probably a month ago, I drove an F-150 Lightning. And honestly, fantastic vehicle. I drive a Tesla. I would never trade it in for a 40 EV though. It's a fantastic work truck. And that is going to be the niche it fills. Um, obviously, some pricing and stuff like that is going to be a little different. Of It's a very expensive work truck. Um, but for what it is, it's, it does a fantastic job. And I don't ever see some of these Teslas like I don't know, a, a Model X or even like the Cybertruck. I feel like it's a little bit too much to be a work truck at the beginning because obviously it's going to come with a high price tag. They're going to sell the ones that cost the most first. Um, so I don't know that they're going to fill that niche at the beginning. Um, and then the super luxurious stuff like Lucid. Lucid does a great job of catering to like the S-class buyers, whereas Tesla, it, it's, a, it's very much a tech company. Everybody knows that and that's how it's valued when we go back to stock price and stuff like that. Um, but I don't know that Tesla is going to be the end all be all in the space. Hmm. Okay. So I have a slightly different take on that and, um, I'm going to reference Mr. Beast. So one of the points that Mr. Beast makes is that like one of the things that creators don't appreciate is that you really need to like obsess over the quality of your product and that like you can put say three times the amount of effort into making one video And that video will outperform, like you'll get 10 times the amount of views on that video by putting three times the effort in. And so it's an exponential return on investment. And I think this is the thing that Apple has done that makes it so good. It's like, they're not the first to market, but they're the first to get it right. And they do put in that extra effort and that extra effort provides such a superior experience and product to the consumer that 
it is the thing that captures the whole market. And like, I mean, there are a ton of Android smartphones out there made by everybody under the sun. And those are not the products that end up capturing the majority of the profit in the smartphone market. The iPhone owns smartphone market profits, basically, period. And I think it correlates with what Mr. Beast has said. You know, you can put out 10 videos and, or you could put out three videos. And if you put the same amount of effort into the three videos that you put into the 10 videos, you'll get more like probably 10 times more views on those three videos than you did on creating the 10. And so there's like that inverse return on investment there that um, Tesla, they know how to get the product right. Uh, it will take them a while just because of the limitations of the supply chain. It'll take a while for a cyber truck to ramp up. Um, and I love what Ford is doing. I don't understand how Ford can survive in yeah. a landscape where they have the amount of debt that they have and they'll sell lightnings, but will they sell enough lightnings to not go bankrupt when they have this massive overhang? I don't know how they do it. And I, you know, I hate that because I think the lightning should be a great part. Like the Mustang Mach-E should be a car that sells a bunch. And if it was made by a company that didn't have all this overhead from their legacy business, I think it totally could be successful. Um, so, and, you know, maybe there will be enough capital in the market to support them through the transition and they'll be fine. But yeah, like they need, they need a product that can really pad the bottom line with profits. And I don't know how you do that when you're facing Cybertruck. And this is, you know, kind of my, like, I don't understand the business case for Rocket Lab. I love them. I love their product, but like, you're going to be operating in a competitive environment with Starship. Like, how the heck do you do that? That's a good point. I, so, I think I, oh God. So I think um, there, there's an interesting thing though with the Mr. Beast comment. So I recognize, you know, someone who makes like fantastic products, you're always going to want to go to them. But just because Mr. Beast is making the best videos on YouTube doesn't mean you only watch Mr. Beast videos. People with their cars, they like to try mm -hmm. variety. And if they have a Tesla for 10 years, they might say, hey, I want to try something else. That's how obviously Tesla's gaining market share. They're taking these people who are car shopping mm -hmm. and they're bringing them into the Tesla community. Um, yeah, and then we can dive into margins and stuff like that. I have yeah. a bunch of stuff I'd love to say on that. And yeah, I think Ford and you know GM and stuff like that. I tell my wife all the time, I don't think GM's going to be around in ten years. <laughs> no. Yeah. How dare you, Mary? Mary <laughs> Barra. Eating. Come eating. on. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, I have to say that. No, I I think it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the biggest differences, like trying to compare like these markets, like the Android iPhone market and then Tesla, it's like, I mean, if you want to only look at the EV market, like I still just don't see how someone competes with Tesla because they've been thinking through the biggest limiting factor, which is battery. And like, if you haven't nailed that down and you haven't been working for that, working on that for five to 10 years, like, you're, but I you're think it's going to be so far behind, right? I think Jared's point, though, is that the market is so stupidly big that there is room for others to play, regardless yeah. of how dominant Tesla is. That's is is that yeah, correct? But, yeah, I, I would say too. That. That. Go ahead. I was no, just going to say, saying, 
Okay, go ahead. You, you first. No, keep doing that. Keep going back and forth. This time. <laughs> I was just going to say. So I think when we talk about you know uh, the competition, I think there's less competition auto manufacturer versus auto manufacturer than we realize compared to competition among supply. And just in the EV revolution, everything like that. Once you start mm-hmm. owning an EV, you never want to go back. And I think right. once people start to realize that, demand is just going to skyrocket. It obviously has over these past few mm-hmm. years. It's beaten projections over the past like 10 years for what they thought the EV space would do. I think that's only going to accelerate going forward. I think that's where competition has the room actually to encroach. Yeah, and I 100% agree with the. There is a lot more room for more products than just Teslas to be successful. Um, yeah, my my main question is around who can who can supply that demand? Um, like what are the, the companies? Volume, right? Yeah. Well, the volume, uh, the margins and the business model to make it successful. And so, yeah, like you said, you have lots to say on margins. I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your perspective on that, Jared, who, and I guess I'll preface this just by saying, you know, Gary was just talking yesterday in the interview about how he sees some automakers, mostly in China, like Baidu and, uh, X paying like they're investing more in hardware than Tesla is on AI and have some qualms about his perspective on that. Um, anyways, but then he didn't, when he project, okay, who are going to be the biggest automakers in 2030? He didn't mention any of those Chinese companies. I'm like, you, you are telling me that today the people that are doing the right things are Tesla and Chinese companies, but in 2030 that Volkswagen and Ford are going to be the number two and three behind Tesla. And I'm sorry, they're not getting software right. And to me, that's honestly, I think that if you could create an ICE vehicle, that competed with Tesla on software and UI, the fact that it didn't have an EV powertrain would not nearly be the drag on it that not having the software would. And yeah, so I, I didn't understand that. But anyways, with that as a kind of a setup, what what are you seeing as far as margins, Jared? And yeah, where, where do you see all of this playing out in, in business models at work and companies that will be successful? Yeah, Rodman, real quick, I want to make sure you have enough space to talk. I definitely cut you off earlier, so I didn't know if you had anything to follow up and say. No, that's good. That's, uh, yeah, I, ju- I just think... You I know, love how he just muted himself. <laughs> <laughs> just walks away. Um, yeah, so I think, I think it's, it, there's, there's, there's going to be a shift, especially in labor, and I think it's almost scary to think about, you know, and I feel for those individuals that are definitely going to be possibly out of jobs and stuff like that, because obviously there's the shift in training towards like electric vehicles and the software side of being such a vital component of these future EVs. Uh, but if we think about like the dealership networks and this is just like such a big piece of fat along the supply or not the supply chain, but just the buying process for consumers. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, they don't need to be there. And it's interesting what is going on with four because they're starting this direct to consumer model where they're kind of bypassing these dealerships. And I, I feel like the dealerships are probably going to sue the heck out of Ford for this because they're taking away, you know, their, their reason for existing. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm super pessimistic about the dealership networks in general. There's going to be a lot of legislation going back and forth. Um, you know, obviously Tesla went through that time where in a lot of States they just couldn't sell because they were a direct to consumer and there are ways they skirted kind of around that. Um, so like, I know specifically like in Ohio, you know, when I was working at Tesla, we kind of supported Pennsylvania um, and Michigan as well as just Ohio because there were so few like sales regions. Uh, but Pennsylvania, you couldn't sell a consumer a car 
So you would have to kind of like walk them through the buying process of what it would be like if they were to purchase it and then allow them at a computer screen in a Tesla store to purchase it themselves. I remember that. Um, and it's just like so much ridiculous stuff going on with there. So that's the dealership side of things. Um, but then when you look at service, obviously it's going to be an interesting component with what happens to service because it's going to be so expensive to maintain an ICE vehicle just because there's going to be less parts. There's so much more complex because one of the selling points too for a Tesla is like sort of 3,000 parts less than an ICE vehicle. Well, you have more just like um, inventory you need to keep up with if you're a shop. You need to not specialize in these like easy EV vehicles where you need to have this broad knowledge set. And obviously like a car's a car. So like even a lot of service technicians for Tesla, they come from BMW, they come from Infiniti and Mercedes and everything like that. Um, but it just really is a massive monumental shift that's going to be happening on both these sides. And then when you look at Ford and their margins and stuff like that in GM and all these, it's hard to be optimistic. I mean, obviously none of us are optimistic about the livelihood of these companies in the future, but I don't know how you could be optimistic about a Ford when, you know, they came out with a Mach-E and they're losing money on it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Real quick, I want to give a shout out to Buck. Buck, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. Mary Barra created the iPhone. She also created the Apple, not the company, literally the fruit. She's old. Thank you, Buck. <laughs> he's, he's always got such good zingers in the comments section. Yeah, he does. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Wasn't sure if y'all had any uh, comments on top of that. Ronman came off of mute. Uh-oh, here we go. No, I don't know. Um, I, th I think you're, I mean, you've totally hit on like every point that we've been, I feel like we've been trying to hit uh, for the for the last four years. <laughs> so the one interesting thing the thing though about the dealership model, which Jared brings up, what is the likelihood that that actually does get removed from the equation and that manufacturers are able to pocket that difference? You know what I'm saying? Because the dealer dealers what making seven to ten percent on the on the transaction between the consumer and the supplier. So if 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 the manufacturer is able to pocket that and just go direct to consumer, then their margins all of a sudden go from seven to fifteen, or you know from ten to twenty. It becomes a significant change. What is the likelihood of that happening? I think it's just too hard to measure. It's such a massive shift that obviously they're going to need to help their workforce transition to different jobs and stuff like that, that it's just not even from a dollar perspective going to be worth it for them in the short term that we can't even imagine what it's going to be like in 20 years for a dealership side. You know, obviously the service side is very different because, you know, sales are very thin margin for them. They make all their money on service. And when you take that away, that's the question of like, are they going to be able to, you know, keep, afloat when they don't have the service revenue mm -hmm. on their ice cars. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's classic disruption, right? This is just, it's disruption like on a massive scale. And I mean, it's, it's no wonder that there's a lot of money targeting Tesla. <laughs> I mean, so um, one of the things that I think on for Ford specifically, you know, they split up the company and there are two different entities right now. And i think that this is, you know, at least my, my sense from the outside, I haven't heard specific commentary, but that that is one of the ways that they'll be able to manage that transition away from the dealer network is like, yeah, this is a new company. It's a completely new entity. It's not held to any of the agreements that were made with whatever dealer networks in the past. And like, we're going to renegotiate everything from the ground up because this is a completely new business. And, you know, we talked about disruption, the, the book, 
uh, the innovator's dilemma really talks about how like in order for an existing player to make a technology transition, like they need to spin off the new company and it needs to grow on its own organically with the market as the market grows and displaces the old market. Um, and so I, structurally, I think Ford is doing some of the right things, but I just don't know if it's going to be enough. And you do have to give them props that they've survived many more transitions than any other existing American car company. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But I think I, I agree with the, with the notion that it's, it's going to be a completely different company, whatever that, that is. And the dealer network cannot be part of it. It's just too much of a drag. It's too much of a drag in a model where the car is built to be as reliable as humanly possible because the market leader is doing exactly that. Like the forcing function of Tesla ensuring that they're maximizing for reliability so that they can remove the cost of the servicing. Tesla bringing service in-house, I think, is a very under-talked uh, point that really is a gigantic forcing function to ensure that the consumer has the best possible experience in the long term, especially they don't get enough credit for that. And yes, I'm biased. Okay. I, I worked in service distribution for four and a half years. So screw you if you disagree with me, just kidding. But, uh, but it, it really is because you think about that forcing function that does. Okay. So service in the, in the, in the PNL for, for Tesla it's, you can very clearly see it. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a profitable line. It's a cost. It's a cost that brings mm -hmm. out the, the profitability of the company. So what is the best way for Tesla to ensure that it's profitable or to ensure that it's not a, as big of a drag on the company? Either make it profitable or make the cost so damn low that it becomes negligible within the context of the entire financial structure of Tesla. And that's the direction that Tesla is going towards by by building cars that rarely, if ever, have problems over the long term. And that's uh, that's a core comp competency for, for the company. Mm -hmm. In a world where EVs become much more adopted, that is a forcing function on every, everybody else to ensure their car never breaks because who the hell wants to deal with that when they can buy a car that never breaks? It's, it's such a long term, it's such a brilliant move. It's such a brilliant move, but it doesn't get talked about because they do have some service issues today. They do like it's it's regional and it's some parts. And, you know, I, I saw it like I was there. It, it sucks for the customer. It's the it's the vast minority, but the vast minority go through some shitty times and, they, and they're vocal as they should be. That's how we get better. Yeah, it, it's that is a very underrated, uh, I think, point to this day. But that in itself renders the dealer network obsolete in the long term because why do you need a dealer network when the cars never break it just doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. um i'm curious to see how long that's going to take and it's going to be a necessary step but talk about the drama that that's going to cause once that starts to happen in five to ten years like i wonder i wonder what's going to be dominating the news tesla becoming the biggest automaker or the or hundreds of thousands of people in the states losing their jobs because the dealer networks have to shut down you know like like which one's going to be the 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 story and how gradual is it going to be you know I'm, i don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that but that's how i think about it yeah yeah it's okay. i mean just kind of like on a different idea but like kind of related to this i we had a mobile service guy come in and i was just like chatting with him like as i'm what to do and uh he was like 
I was like, how long have you been working at Tesla? And I was asking him about like all of his other friends. And he was like, well, one of the things seems to be that like a lot of people with tenure or like who've been there for a while get hired up by these other companies like Lucid and stuff um, and Rivian. And like, they're trying to pull in all these EV, like mechanic, like people who have worked on EVs and service to those, to those kind of uh, these new EV startups. Um, but it's, it's interesting that they're like, it's forcing these companies to pay like more to these employees to draw, draw them away from Tesla. And maybe like, maybe Tesla doesn't need to raise up their price because they can just pull in all these other people because like this guy, like who was a mobile tech for, for Tesla, he was a former Audi tech. And so, you know, like Tesla will pull these people in through the door, they'll keep getting people and then they'll get, you know, they'll, they'll be training these people for these new entrants who are going to be paying them more to keep these uh, service people on. So I think that's kind of interesting and related, but I don't know if you guys have. I think think the financial piece of that can't be understated because if you compare an employee speculating, should I go, you know, theoretically, if I have the skill set to be working on these EVs, do I want to go to Ford that has this hundred year old stock that hasn't do anything? They're going to hopefully make a few percent margin. Or am I going to go to Tesla where they have these massive margins Mm -hmm. and make a lot of money? They're pushing innovation in this space and have been for over a decade. And who knows what the future looks like? I mean, you go back to your investment theory of like, you don't know what's around the corner or what's going to be the most impactful to the bottom line. We don't know. Um, Like, I feel like that's intriguing as an employee. Is that what drew you in when you, when you first joined the company or was it different? Was it it different things? No, I I think the the fantastic product really drove me in. I think that's what draws a lot of people in. They just want to work on what's cool. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, just the cultural cachet of that too, that there's so many, like the cool people are Tesla people. And so obviously that's where you have to go. Like you have to start there. And then, you know, if you go somewhere else eventually then, okay. But like you have to start there. But what's the the point Jared makes is so interesting because that's like a that becomes more and more a variable for people to want to join the company the more we go into the future because because that becomes a like it becomes a very big point of Tesla is like Tesla is a company that's making so much money and their stock is going up and if I go join the company I know that they're going to be just fine and I'm going to get a piece of that pie like I wonder how big of a of a variable that becomes because before before it was more potential. Like it was a hundred percent. The reason why I joined them, it's because super awesome products. I want to make sure this company succeeds and it looks fun as hell. So I'm going to go join it. Right. But now in 2023, it's going to be, wow, Tesla's making 20, $30 billion a year and their stock is doing extremely well. And I get to work on these cool things. Why would I, to your point, why the hell would I ever go work for GM? Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, interesting stuff. I think it might be more visceral than that because I don't think a lot of people are going to be following the financials. Like, I mean, as a, like, like, unless you're Mm. very financially minded or like, even I don't think a lot of engineers really probably are following. I I mean, a lot of people know that Apple makes a lot of money, you know? So sorry, I have a great story about this. Um, So, you know, obviously I said, I have a background in finance, so I'm very financially minded. But um, I knew a story from someone who wasn't financially minded, and it was this exact situation, except with SpaceX. Um, so this gentleman and I, um, I met him probably a year or so ago, and I don't mean to pick on him, I keep him anonymous. 
Um, but when he graduated um, with his degree in engineering, his bachelor's, he was offered a job at SpaceX, went through all the interviews and stuff like that. But they were paying like, I don't remember if it was like forty to $50,000 per year, which like out in Hawthorne, California is obviously like very mm-hmm. low relative to like average income and stuff like that. But obviously he had equity in the company he could have gotten, you know, I'm um, trying to think maybe like five, six years ago or whatever, he graduated with his bachelor's and that would have done tremendous things, even though it's still privately held. And obviously SpaceX mm-hmm. equity is going to be worth a hell of a lot more one day too. Uh, but then he took a job at, um, I actually probably shouldn't say where he took a job, but it was very like a yeah. legacy company doing something, you know, it, yeah, wasn't, it, was it, wasn't, it wasn't vehicles or anything like that. Um, it was actually in the food industry, I'll say. Um, but yeah, he took a job there where it probably paid him like twice as much as the SpaceX job. Um, you know, he loves his job, so good for him. But, you know, there's that opportunity that I don't think others measure in the startup space, you know, when they're just going coming out of college. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is already a factor, like, this is why Tesla had literally 3 million applicants in 2021. <laughs> like how insane is that? Yeah. Dude, the resume, the resume process when I was there and I was trying to like find, you know, that there were so many different, I was constantly part of the, we need to find people to add to the company process. Like that never really stopped. Um, and the amount of like high quality resumes you have to parse through, it's kind of dumb. Like it's, there's so much, like you literally have, you know, HR will send you a, uh, well, first there is a filter that everything goes through that anything that's like the, the resume is just compl- like, it's obvious that it doesn't apply. Somebody just is trying to mass send resumes everywhere. Those move out. But then HR, like say for one role, HR ends up with maybe like 300 to 400 legitimate resumes. And then those out of those 300, 400, they pass on like 20 or 30 to me for, for, for one position. And then I'm going through these resumes. I'm like, yeah, I, I just all of them, just all of them, just bring them in. We'll talk to them. Just bring them in. We'll talk to all of them. And uh, it, that was like, I can confirm that it's quite wild just how many applicants they get. And, and it's always, and it's always fascinating to see just the, the, the vast variety of backgrounds that we get, but they're all, they all came in with the same mindset of like, yo, Tesla's really cool. And I want to be part of the mission. Tesla's really cool. I want to be part of the mission. And you know, this could be for warehouse worker or analysts. And it's like, we're like drawing people in from all these different fields. It's fascinating. Like the, the variety of, of talent they get is also what's really cool. And I think that's what's also a strength of Tesla is that they get a lot of like varying types of people joining the company from very vastly different backgrounds that that are working on the same things. And you get such a different uh, approach to problem solving. And it's, it's a really cool thing. It's a really, really cool thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Hans. Oh, that's just the flywheel. Like you, if you have an unlimited pool of the best people in the world to work on the coolest projects in the world, then you win. <laughs> you win. Like you can't help but win. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, as, as, as good as a uh, history. Um, Jared, do you have any topics you want to, you want to, you want us to talk through since you're new to the panel? Let's give you the spotlight and see if you have anything you want to talk about. Yeah, I know this kind of topic sometimes puts people to sleep. Um, but I'm interested if you guys want to dive into it cause it's Tesla related. Um, it's going to be the Tesla insurance. Um, okay. yeah. So I actually work in the insurance space. Um, and I just think it's really interesting what's going on with Tesla and the, um, telematics that the car uses and everything like that. Like I said, I live in Ohio. I have a model three, I have Tesla insurance for my vehicle. 
and I just have to say it's a fantastic product. I don't know if you guys um, have the opportunity to um, have Tesla insurance where you live. I know far as out here in Texas, so I believe you have it offered there. Uh, but mm-hmm. just if you guys have experience with that, I'd be curious to hear about it. I haven't right. yet. I know that they've offered it, but I haven't I haven't looked into it quite yet. Yeah, we have a three and a Y on it, and my dad's S is on it too. Um, I my dad is actually a, he was a he was a VP of actuarial department here in California. So he's in insurance as well. And uh, he was, I mean, the the way I think about it is you got a couple factors that just completely changes the game. Um, First, you're insuring only one type of vehicle. Um, You're not insuring like a broad spectrum of vehicles. So you kind of can, if you have a lot of data on that, you're going to have a lot more reliability in your numbers of like, how many cars you can expect to crash. So, because you have to cover all those things. The second thing is, you know, like the safety features is going to reduce the cost if you make a car that's safer, right? So if you avoid crashes, which FSD and autopilot and all these ADAS features do, they reduce the incidents. So you're going to have less percentage of vehicles crashing. So you don't have to cover all those. And the safety feature goes another level is if you build cars that are less likely to have injuries, you're going to have less medical lawsuits or less medical coverage that you need to cover. Mm-hmm. So like all these things are just pushing the price down and like you're, you're going to, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And then you add on the layer oh. of like incentivizing people, right? Um, you can't do that in California, which is weird. But everywhere else seems to be, yeah. So you're going to have people mm-hmm. make having less accidents. It's just a huge. It's another flywheel that's going to reduce the cost. And why would I want to pay for insurance with someone else where I'm covering like their less reli- like their less safe car when I could mm-hmm. be paying for just people who are like I'm in a pool with people who are in much safer vehicles. Well, and it ties back to what Farzad was saying about, you know, having the closed loop of service creates a forcing function within the company to improve the reliability of the cars. Having a closed loop with insurance creates a forcing function to make the safe. I mean, they were already the safest cars on the road, but now they're going to know, like, exactly how do I make an improvement that we can measure in dollars, like the impact of this improvement on the overall safety of everyone on the road. And then, yeah, like you said, Rodman, like it's not only the the active safety features, like the structural safety of the cars to begin with. So when someone else hits you, your passengers are less likely to be injured because your car is structurally safe. And then you have control of, Hey, like I can keep my car from hitting other cars because I have all these active software safety features. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, like you said, a compounding flywheel of impact. And then from a data perspective that because they're fully instrumented that they have so much more data to create so much more granular actuarial tables and you know they can charge dynamic pricing to you based on the risk that you're introducing into the system and hey you know if you're a risky driver you know we don't have to just say oh you're a 21 year old dude who likes to go fast you're probably going to kill more people like some 21 year olds are like the most granny drivers ever 
and they don't have to pay the same insurance rates as the normal 21 year olds. Um, and so they're just, you know, compounding benefits across the board. Yeah. For, like for me that the insurance piece, the, the thing I wonder is like, how did Tesla end up pro- providing insurance in the first place? And this conversation around data is fascinating to me because I wonder how much of these new products that Tesla or these new things that Tesla is looking to release in the future, how many of them are born out of a need to gather data to better their products and then a product line becomes obvious once they start going down that path. So like the insurance thing, for example, um, the forcing function to improve safety, the forcing function to reduce cost to the consumer, so on and so forth. I wonder how much of it, how much was Tesla be like, man, I wonder, I wonder if we could somehow incentivize the customer to drive as safe as humanly possible. And how do we gather data so that we can best decide how to make the car safer and make it so that the self-driving suite gets better over time. And I wonder how much of that was just People were like, well, if we start gathering all this data or we have this sort of system in place, it's basically like insurance. You know, like if we understand all these things that are going on, let's just offer the product and monetize it, you know? And like, how does that sort of play into future things that Tesla is going to look to do? Like, what, what are the things that they're looking at from a data perspective that they need to gather that turn, then turn into product clients? And I don't know if that's a like a thought that actually makes any sense, but that's sort of what my where my head goes to. But in, for insurance specifically, I don't know how big of a long-term sort of profit center that's going to be for Tesla if Tesla's going to have the cheapest car, period, like it, or, or the safest car, period. Like how much does insurance, it's like kind of like life insurance at that point. Like life insurance is it's quite cheap per month. It's like what, or per year. It's, it's not that expensive, but, um, but people have it and it's important. But is car insurance going to turn into that long term? And is it really going to add that much of a bottom line to the company? I'm sure it's a, an opportunity costing as much as anything else in it. I don't see how it was not born out of, hey, if we want to operate a robo taxi fleet where there are no human drivers responsible for the vehicle, insurance has to be responsible for the vehicle. Do we want to outsource insurance to someone else who is not Tesla? to dictate to us what our pricing model for operating this robo taxi fleet is, or do we want to vertically integrate that and bring it in house? Like it's inevitable if they're going to operate a robo taxi network insurance is like one of the number one things that has to be figured out. And that's going to drive a huge portion of the cost structure. And so how do you not say, yeah, I want to be in hundred percent control of the cost structure of my robo taxi business. So I can't let in third party control the insurance costs. And, and experience like we were talking about the Apple comparison, you know, it's almost like Apple, you know, buying Verizon and owning the network. Yeah. Farzad, you're pulling up comments. I have to say, this is like the best comment. It made me LOL. It's from Nicholas. Shanks. You can only get Tesla home insurance. If your house is built from Boeing bricks, that was, that's hysterical. Where is, um, where yeah, is so, that at? Let me find it. Uh, probably like a minute or so ago, uh, four minutes ago. Yeah. So okay. here's, here's the edge Tesla has. And I think, you know, when we talk about um, why they might've done it, my, first assumption is in insurance, you are doing a lot of estimations, whether it's actuarially um, or just, you know, general business assumptions on the data, what's going on, the trends, frequency and severity, um, losses that have incurred, but haven't been reported yet. Tesla has that data. 
Most mm-hmm. insurance companies are waiting till you call them to file a claim. As soon as someone hits your Tesla, Tesla knows about it. And that's their edge is they can estimate claims based on, you know, watching the century mode vision and stuff like that. So they have such an edge because they own the hardware. Most telematics insurance is either a plug into your car or on your phone. That doesn't tell the insurance carrier much. It tells them maybe those five rating factors that they use to rate your insurance on. But it really tells you nothing about the hardware of the vehicle at that moment. So I think Tesla insurance just has this Mm -hmm. massive edge from the data because it's just an end-to-end experience. And then when we talk about um, the end-to-end experience, again, you can take a shot every time I say end-to-end experience. Um, But so (laughs) (laughs) I just think, you know, when you have an experience of a Tesla where it just makes sense from a charging, um, from a maintenance, even from an insurance perspective, that's where I see Tesla dominating. It's just they're doing every component of driving a vehicle the best way. When you right. do something the best in every category, what reason is there to buy another car? You know? Yep. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's like, what was the impetus for making Tesla insurance? And it's like, is there a better way to do this? Is there a first principles way we can just make this mm-hmm. like a cleaner experience for people? Uh, we, my, my wife like scratched the side out of our why within like when it was delivered, it was like three months and she like kind of drove, like cut a quarter and like hit a pole and like, and we, we, we were under Tesla insurance and like, it was so seamless. I mean, it was great. Like mm-hmm. it took a while because they were ramping the why to get the part. But once they had the part, like I like I just dropped off the car and like everything was taken care of and like all the insurance was paid for and like it was great. I mean it was like it was as easy as any experience could be, but it wasn't I mean the main thing was it wasn't worse than like what you would have gone through with Geico or whatever. Um and it was I, I would say it was probably better, but like if it's the same or better and the cost less. Like it's like a no brainer. And I think that's like the reason why you have to think like, why would they do this? It's like to make the whole experience better. And think about the cost benefit also in like knowing who is at fault, like how much money is spent in the legal. I mean, so many times crashes are just litigated to the nth degree. And this, insurance company has their lawyers and this insurance company has their lawyers and they're like fighting who was actually at fault and to how much and like, Oh yeah, we actually had 360 degree visibility by cameras. We know exactly what happened. We know exactly who was at fault and like, we don't have to fight in court over how much this person was at fault and how much that person was at fault. Like we know within, you know, an hour of review of the data, and we don't have to fight about this. And like lawyers' times are expensive. Yeah, that's a that's a super awesome point. I wonder if they do yeah. have that data. I mean, they should, right? I just who knows about the integration between insurance and the rest? But you would imagine that they could just say, "Okay, give us this file from this person." Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you, Hans. And it was interesting. Um, so. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, obviously, you know, that's a very specific case scenario. And I would say the majority of insurance losses look nothing like that. They're very case closed. As soon as, you know, a report comes in, everything's pretty black and white for 80 plus percent of insurance claims. Um, so 
with the original Tesla Roadster, um, Carl Medlock, um, who's a guy, he used to be a, a Roadster technician. He has a shop up in Seattle, Washington, that works on a lot of the original Roadsters. He was telling an interesting story um, maybe a week or so ago on the Roadster Facebook page. And he was saying that um, in a litigation, even back then, he was able to just plug in his laptop to the original Roadster and grab the data files and prove that some guy was going under the speed limit in a lawsuit. So that was a pretty interesting story about obviously mm -hmm. Tesla has had so much data even since like 2008 on their cars. Yeah. Do y'all think, do y'all think, uh, so where my head went when you guys were talking about the, I love how I use y'all and you guys in the same sentence. What am I doing here? <laughs> my God, I'm so inconsistent. You're slowly becoming a Texan. That's what's happening. Yeah. It takes time. It's, it's a, uh, the y'all is, so when I'm talking to other Texans in the room, it's all y'all. But when I'm like, when I hear you guys and y'all, then anyway, this is, you why am I talking guys. about this right now? Yeah, y'all guys. <laughs> nice. um, the, the, where my head goes towards is Tesla lifestyle ecosystem, right? We're talking about this sort of insurance thing that's going to cover everything about your car. We have the car driving it, you know, the drive is going to, the car's going to drive itself and it becomes an entertainment hub. We've talked about Tesla solar panels and power walls and all these things. God knows how many other products Tesla's going to come out with. HVAC, I don't know, homes, who knows? Like to me, these are all pieces that are starting to sort of fit into a equation that becomes the, like a lifestyle ecosystem. Like everything that you do is going to be, is touched that you touch or interface with on a daily basis, or most things are going to be handled by this, by this entity called Tesla. And it's not just cars, but it's the insurance for your car. It's not just your home. It's also the insurance for your home and your power grid and how it generates electricity. Like <clears throat> Am I am I thinking about this too crazy? I'm just I'm just throwing it out there because my brain immediately went there. It's like everything's handled for you, and we got it. Like you don't even have to like the shopping. Who knows? Maybe down the road, you know, with the transportation and the bot, Tesla's going to offer you a service to just take all the shopping for you. All you have to do is go on the Tesla app and put your your weekly groceries in, and a bot will show up with a FSD car. And it's just going to deliver the food for you in your Tesla fridge, which is the most power efficient fridge in the world. And it has incredible technology and it's going to know exactly when you're running out of like, this is where my head goes. This is where my head goes. Am I stupid? Am I crazy? Is this way too far down the line? Are these the beginning pieces? Is Tesla thinking about this? I don't know if, if we even want to make this a topic, but that's where my head goes when we talk insurance in the long term. I'm crazy. You can just say it. <laughs> it's fine. I, so the thing that I always think about when I think like all the possibilities that are out there is like, there's a limit to the amount of like to the size that society will tolerate one company being like, there's a political sociological limit to, yeah, y'all just make way too much money and you do too many, like, that's just not cool. Like we can't handle that. Okay. Part so of at some point, go ahead, Jared. Supply of resources and time, you know. And I think one of the things that makes me like, you know, super bullish on Tesla and just like in general supporting of it is you just think about Elon and like, all right, look at pictures of Elon when he like started Tesla and look now. Obviously, he's aged a lot, but he's spending his prime years at Tesla. And, you know, that's not going to last forever. So I think it's just it shows the importance of the work he's doing and Tesla's doing right now. Yeah. 
But uh, it actually, does. Go, go ahead, Rodman. I was just thinking that you know there's going to be more spinoffs. That's the main thing. Um, <clears throat> it's either going to be companies that are started by people who are formerly Tesla employee, employees that are thinking about solving these problems. But like, there's only so much that I feel like Tesla can put under its umbrella before, like you guys said, like it it becomes either untenable to peeps to society or to to regulators or even to to, to the society, right? And mission creep too. But you know, yeah, one yeah. of the things to think about in that is like it's pretty easy to identify lots of areas where they could go in and dominate a marketplace. And so, you know, they're obviously not going to pursue any and every one of those opportunities. But what you do know is that through observing Elon over time, that he knows what is the highest leverage point that I can focus time, energy, and resources. And so if you can identify a hundred ways that they could make a shit ton of money and Elon doesn't choose those things, it's because he found a better one. And so like you can extrapolate that into, you know, this is one of the ways that I think about Dojo. People are like, well, you know, is Dojo going to be a waste of time? Is it going to be a waste of money? Is it going to be a waste of resources? Could they have just waited for an NVIDIA GPU cluster? It's like, if Elon can put together a massive, you know, AWS size server farm somewhere, I guarantee you that Tesla can figure out a way to monetize that at least 50% as good as Amazon monetizes theirs. And like, it's probably multiples, you know, an order of magnitude more, but we'll just even say conservatively, like how much does AWS make in revenue off of a, server farm the size of dojo and then we can just assign like conservatively okay at least half of as much of that we'll give to dojo and so yeah that's i mean that's one of the ways that i think about those opportunities that are out there i think part of it you have to return to the mission too though you know when we talk about like as far as that you mentioned refrigerators like are refrigerators improving people's lives by making them you know more efficient or whatnot by advancing the avenue of sustainable energy (laughs) (laughs) we can fit Two million hamsters in a refrigerator. It will improve everything. Yes. Yeah. Everybody knows this. <laughs> but I think, you know, That's going back point. to what I was trying to push at with like Elon spending his prime years at Tesla is just like the importance of the mission is obviously so mm-hmm. much further than just making people's lives easier. And obviously, you know, with a lot of the Tesla talk, we can sound pretentious in our first world and stuff like that. But it's going to trickle down throughout um, other countries and, you mm-hmm. know, through time with the work we're putting in these formative years. So... So that mission statement is such an interesting point, though, because Tesla getting into the bot is already a deviation from that mission statement, one could argue. So what's the likelihood that the mission statement changes to try and encapsulate more of those product lines that uh, that are seem extremely unlikely now, but become more likely because their engineering prowess is just uh, where it is right now? Like could the bot signal that transition? Because I, I, the only way I could put, because if the bot, if they execute bot at the at the rate that they would execute everything else, like one could make the argument, yes, it's ex- helping accelerate the advent of, of sustainable energy because the bot's going to become crucial in ensuring the scale gets there as quickly as humanly possible. So I could see that. But then what are the, what's the likelihood that ch- Tesla just changes its mission statement to ensure that the future of humanity is good? 
you know, then why wouldn't a uh, super powerful, amazing fridge be part of that? You know, if it's tied to the automated, uh, to, a, to a bot bringing everything for you and that which frees up time for you to pursue your passions and to ensure that you're building, building a better future, you know, I don't know, but curious to see if that becomes a reality or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it will be interesting because I think obviously like Elon and the Tesla team are looking to where things are going just in general with something like the bot. And obviously the big first transition was when they went from Tesla Motors to just Tesla and, you know, the mission statement mm -hmm. changed from sustainable True. transport to sustainable energy. You know, I could see 10 years from now, the mission state statement changing and them narrowing their focus on something else as opposed to just energy more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's going it's to be fascinating to watch. All right, I still feel like Sorry, the, the bot kind of fits in with the mission. I mean, like if you use the bot to build other things, right, in a sustainable way, right? So the, the bot's driven by like probably solar energy or sustainable energy. And then it's contributing mm -hmm. into building things uh, faster uh, and more efficiently, you know, so that's more vehicles out there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we didn't talk about that question yesterday with James, and it was one of the ones that I was kind of excited to to ask him is, you know, what role does he expect Tesla bot to play in master plan part three? Like is Tesla bot a key component in being able to reach massive scale for Tesla? And I kind of think that it is. I think that's why, you know, as Elon has been hinting at master plan part three, it correlates with the timeline that he's been hinting at or talking about Tesla bot. Um, and so it, it probably is tied in there. And I think the implicit, uh, maybe the functional mission of Tesla right now is started solving the world's hardest engineering problems that specifically get in the way of a sustainable human presence on earth. Mm -hmm. and, and so Mike, go ahead. Yeah. So like, if you think about a refrigerator, like the work that they've already done with so, Octovalve, they've solved that problem and someone else can take that solution and now go apply it in an incremental way to refrigerators. Mm -hmm. It's not getting in the way of being able to improve the sustainability of humans on earth. Like they've got more important engineering problems to solve. Yeah. So boats and planes before fridges. Is basically what you're saying. Yeah. Definitely. Got it. I don't understand why. Fridges are, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Rodman, go ahead. You were saying something before. No. No. Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking like it isn't, it's an interesting problem. Like, I mean, my, my refrigerator spits hot air into my house right so that's counteracting like all the stuff and then mm -hmm. i have to recool i have to have to, like i have to either ac or like use other methods to get mm -hmm. that temperature out like it does make sense to like have one central like octo valve that's like mm -hmm. doing all this stuff like heating up your water or taking the heater from my from my refrigerating my water and putting it into my heat mm -hmm. uh, my water heater it's just like how much resources does Tesla have to put towards that? And I think it's just SpaceX you know, will SpaceX will do that job when they're working on developing Habs for Mars. Yeah, mm. and then it will roll out to to people, hopefully on Earth. But yeah, 
Yeah. Um, there is a, t- you're Jared, on you're mute, Jared. Thanks guys. Yeah. It's, I was just gonna say, it's funny. We keep bringing up this fridge example. I actually do know a guy who has a Tesla refrigerator. I have to ask him the story on it though. Cause it looks pretty official. He was a former Tesla employee. So I don't know if, I don't know how he, you know, you know, got that, but I'll have to ask him about that. Nothing, nothing revolutionary, but it's just a normal fridge with Tesla branding on it. I wonder if he just took like the, like the logo from the model S and just, just like <laughs> Tesla logo on the fridge. Um, Go ahead, Hans. I don't know if you're going to say something. I was curious what Chuck was. Oh yeah, I got paywalled. Let me let me pull it up. That's this is what it looks like. Can Tesla data help us understand car crashes? Uh, article from New York Times, uh, eighteen August eighteenth, so yesterday. But um, create your free account or log in to continue reading. Uh, I, so if I create a free account, uh, we'll do it. Okay, give me a second. So nobody knows my password. Okay. Continue. Continue without subscribing. Welcome to the times. All right, we're in, guys. Here we go. Uh, just maybe later. Leave me alone. There we go. Um, so there's this a, a, a link that Chuck Cook shared in the chat. And um, looks like they were already talking about um, Tesla data helping us with crashes. After the collision, Mrs. Ford told police officers that autopilot at Tesla driver assistance systems had suddenly activated her brakes for no apparent reason. She was unable to regain control before the Acura crashed into the back of her car, but her description is not the only record of the accident. Tesla logged nearly every particular down to the angle of the steering wheel in a millisecond before impact. Okay. Oh, look, so there's some... Oh, this is like a whole interactive thing. Okay. So I guess the the point here is that Tesla is already collecting a gigantic amount of data and I guess New York Times is making a piece around it, right? Unless there's something I missed, Chuck, let us know in the comments, but this is what that looks like. Oh, look at this, frame by frame. Less than a second after the crash, okay. So I guess, is there something with uh, Tesla slowing down and then getting rear-ended, I guess. What do y'all, I mean, what, what do y'all gather from this article? Keep, keep scrolling or like beyond this. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so experts say this data could fundamentally change the way regulators, PD, mm-hmm. insurance, yeah, how they investigate everything, more accurate, cool. less costly. Yeah. Okay. Tesla, awesome. by contrast, yeah. is a constant stream of info. Well, and I'm sure that so this is going to be an incredibly pivotal capability to have as we transition to robo taxis because they're going to want to know everything about how and why automated car crashes occurred and so being able to provide this level of detail so that you can also then create a root cause analysis and whatever your corrective action steps are going to be afterwards is going to be critical keep scrolling please sure (laughs) 
Yeah. And then in, a new a, in a new paper, he argues all car makers should be required to collect this kind of data and openly share it. There's a quote that uh, Chuck shared that I'm trying to find in the uh, comments section. Let's see. Chuck, 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 Chuck. Okay. Oh, maybe did it DM me? Did you DM me, Chuck, or is it a uh, is it in the comment section? I can't I can't find it. All right. Um, there was one other there was one other thing I wanted to cover uh, before we wrap it up. Um, just real quick. Yesterday's uh, flex alert saw the first activation of the PGE for me plus Tesla virtual power plant and the world's largest distributed battery sure did put on a show. Nearly 2,500 PG&E customers delivered up to 16.5 megawatt of clean solar power when it was needed most. And this story to me seems to be flying extremely under the radar, extremely under the radar. Uh, that energy is starting to make some legitimate differences um, in in homes already uh, in parts of the country. Did you all see this by any chance? Yeah, I saw this tweet before we got on and I was hoping that we were going to talk about it. Let's talk about it. What do you got? Yeah, I think this is super exciting. Um, The ability to, so, you know, a lot of people don't understand how power grids work and, um, we don't have good ways with the old technology for power to store energy at the system for use on demand. And so when, you know, it's say you're hitting three o'clock or four o'clock in California, it's super hot outside in certain periods of the or certain areas of the state and everyone is coming home and they're flipping on their AC at the same time, like there's a huge spike in the amount of energy that is being pulled off the grid. And so the grid has to be able to respond to that. They can't like store up electricity before that time and then be like, okay, here it is. Now we're just going to release it out onto the grid. They have to actually scale their production at the same rate as demand and try and match it as closely as possible. Um, And so, you know, they're, various technologies that we get power from, you know, some places still have nuclear, which is a great base for your power generation, but that's like constant and you can't just like, Oh, Hey, we're going to ramp up. Now the nuclear is producing two times as much power as it was before. Um, And so you've got different types of technologies, Uh, you know, hydro, you can't get a bunch more hydro quickly. So typically we use, coal-powered peaker plants um, because those are the fastest to dynamically adjust to the load that is being put on the system. Um, Once it goes past a certain point and you can think about it like, so if like steady state or average demand is here and you got like a peak that's here, well, you're probably going to have a power generation capability that's somewhere below the peak. And most of the time, you're actually creating more than you need. And so you're trying to find somewhere to send it. Um, but you don't have an ability to store it. So you've got to send it to another grid somewhere else that can use it right when it's being produced. But then when it peaks over, like, well, how do we get more? And so, yeah, that's where the the coal peaker plants come into use. And so here, what this is, is saying, hey... 
we can either have batteries that are uh, distributed battery systems, which is what we have here, or like Megapacks. But either way, if we have enough battery storage connected to the grid, then we can actually save. And it's you know the same idea of for people who live in areas where they do prorated electricity charges based on the time of day, like when it's cheap at night for you to charge your car, you can do that. Or if you've got a power wall at home, you can charge up the power wall when the electricity is cheap. And then when it's expensive, you can draw off your batteries. So this is the same exact concept, but in reverse back to the grid, the grid can store up power in these batteries when power is cheap and there's not as much demand. So their, their supply is over their demand. That's why it's cheap there. So they can store that up. And then when they need it for that peak moment, they can draw off the batteries instead of have to ramp up, you know, some coal fired power plant in order to keep the grid from going into rolling blackouts when you peak out over your, your constant state generation capability. Yeah. Yeah. The anticipation of those spikes requires even a lag time for these factories or for these generators, um, like a peaker plant. They have to like anticipate how much there's going to be and like try to match that. Whereas a battery, you just pull as much as you need, right? Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, so- as long as it's there, yeah, yeah. It, it responds instantly. Yeah. And so they they far far outperform. a a peaker plant in their ability to stabilize the grid. Um, And then this is like one of the huge arguments against sustainable energy sources is that the more that you use an intermittent energy source like solar or wind and not nuclear, the more flexible options you have to pair with that in order to stabilize your grid. Um, Cause you don't know when, you know, it's harder to anticipate what your needs are going to be. When do you need the peaker plant? How many peaker plants do you need? Um, and this is why Elon has always said that the correct solution is solar and wind plus massive batteries that you have to have the batteries in order for using uh, sustainable electricity sources to be feasible for a grid. Yep. And so this is why in like places like Germany where they have lots of solar and wind, but they don't have the batteries, it's kind of a, an energy situation catastrophe. Yep. Well, it's bearing fruit in Australia and now Mm -hmm. it'd be in the U S so it's great that we're just using these things that people use on their house. Um, to, to kind of provide their own resiliency through these blackouts that now we can use these as their own like mega packs in a way and you can make a little money off of it. So mm-hmm. I think that's, what's super exciting is that there's an incentive to do it and we have the people are installing the technology to do it and we're just using what's out there. And it's just a net benefit. I mean, it's like a huge win-win like, like there's, I just can't see any negatives about it. Yeah. Marcus I find it fascinating. Yeah, he's he's calling you out for a job well done. I just find it fascinating that it's still uh, flying under the radar. I mean, probably rightfully so, because it's been ramping so... I mean, it really was de-ramping for a little while there. Energy is mm-hmm. out of the business. But how under, under the radar it's flying, that it's really going to be a... Um, 
I think it's going to surprise a lot of folks once Tesla pulls the usual S-curve that they do with these ramps. And then they're like, oh, my God, what happened to energy? <laughs> it's doubled in the last year, tripled in the last two years, you know, so on and so forth. So, Jared, I don't know if you had any thoughts around, around this specific topic. Yeah, I mean, that, that specific comment, it's, it's an interesting crossroad that they've been at for a bit here because when we talk about going back to the car demand, Elon's talked about how energy hasn't ramped up as much as they would have liked to have because putting batteries in a power pack or a mega pack is just taking away from cars that they can deliver. Um, you know, so you just hope that they can get their supply for the car side mm-hmm. which is exponentially greater so that they have the time and energy and resources to focus on the energy side. Yeah. Yeah. So power pack before refrigerator, Farzad, that's the answer to your question. <laughs> Maybe we'll use that to uh, end the stream. Uh, is there anything else y'all wanted to uh, to hit before we, we wrap it up? I guess, yeah, just to put a f- fine point on it that it really is a huge, huge, like it is a, a tangible first step that, you know, supply notwithstanding that this has been theorized that this is what we can do for a long time. Um, but seeing a virtual power plant operating in the United States for the first time, I think they've done some testing in Australia with uh, their projects down there. Um, but, you know, pg e is one of the biggest utility conglomerates in the United States. So for them to actually have in the books, a proof of concept that performed spectacularly, at least to the level, if not surpassing the expectations, um, you know, it's the type of watershed moment that will be looked back on once we start fixing a lot of these things in the future as a major, a major pivot. For sure. Rodman or Jatter, any any last thoughts? I think we indirectly, you know, have been around it, but we're talking about the energy side of things. And going back to the bot and the mission statement earlier, it's almost like they didn't they don't have the resources right now to really push on the energy side of business. So in the meantime, they can work on AI and push that leaps and bounds and stuff like that while they're almost having the energy side on pause. Yeah. That's a super interesting way to think about mm-hmm. it. Like how, what's yeah. the, like Elon thinks at the bottleneck, right? And like, if you thought about like what the production line is, like he sleeps at that bottleneck, but like maybe what's happening now is instead of focused on like this kind of micro scale, I mean, mm-hmm. relatively small scale, like the, the production line, he's now thinking maybe at a larger scale, it's like, how can I get this whole thing moving more rapidly. And maybe that's, maybe that's optimist. Maybe, maybe there's other, I mean, there's gotta be a lot of other things that they can Mm -hmm. do right now to throw money at this problem um, and just accelerate it. And that should be exciting for Tesla investors, right? Because like these things will bear fruit and, you know, we're, we're, we're still so early days, right? even though like so much has happened in 10 years. Yeah, pretty wild. Shout out to Jared for stepping up and going live. Great job, dude. You're a natural bro for your first time. Such a good job. Super value add. Uh, Thank you all very much for joining today's stream. Thank you, Hans. Thank you, Rodman. Thank you, Jared. Plug y'all's Twitter and stuff. So it looks like we got Hans is already up there, right? Web3 line. Yeah, I took a cue from... Tesla Boomer Mama, she did that. I was like, oh, that's smart. I should try that. Yes. 
Uh, Rodman, did you want to plug yours by any chance? Yeah, mine's at Rodam, R-O-D-A-M-N. And okay. That's, that's me. Jared, I don't post on Twitter. Twitter. I just follow people, but it's just Jared Crano. C-R-A-N-O is my last name. Perfect. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining. We'll see you next. Actually, I'll be I'll be traveling next week to Pennsylvania, but there will be a video that I'll launch on Thursday that I'm finishing up right now. We'll go live on that day. That's going to be my last, uh, the only video probably for next week. And then the week after, I'll return with the usual schedule. So thank you all very much for joining. Thank you, panel. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll see you later. Thanks, everybody. Bye. <laughs> I love it.